The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today, for my second segment, I'll be holding office hours with my college coach colleague, Kira Tyler, former admissions officer at Brandeis University and college coach veteran. Many of our students are coming back from their first college visits, so we thought we'd go over the, go over the post-college visit discussion. What should you and your student be reflecting on? It shouldn't just be that there's been some nice weather or at that campus it was rainy. So definitely try and go a little deeper than that. And we'll, we'll, discuss, you know, we'll discuss what we do with our students to get them there. For my third and last segment, I'll be talking with college finance consultant Tara Piantanita Kelly. You can tell I'm not ever sure how to pronounce her name. Former senior admission officer at Rochester Institute of Technology about what to do now that your high school senior has deposited at their college of choice. But for my first segment, I'm actually really excited about this one. Um, I'll be talking with Tova Tolman, college coach, educational consultant, and former admissions officer at Columbia Barnard College, Fordham, and Montclair State in New Jersey. And the reason I'm excited about this is we're going to be talking about um, what a liberal arts education means. And I myself worked at um, colleges that are really well known for having kind of a pure liberal arts education. Uh, I, I worked at Reed College and I worked at University of Chicago. So so let's go ahead and dig right in, Tova. Um, how are you doing Thanks, today? Sally. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here and try and do my best to help you tackle this pretty nebulous topic, but something we do get asked about a lot. A lot, exactly. And I have to say that when I try and explain it, I often get sort of like some people get it and they're sort of excited about it. And then other times I get kind of blank stares, you know, so. Um, <laughs> Definitely. So, and so you think it'd be easier, right? We both went to liberal arts colleges. We both worked at liberal arts colleges. You think there'd be a very clear answer. Oh, well, this is exactly what a liberal arts college is. Yeah. And, you know, I thought about this and I think that the reason is that students who are interested in places like Reed and University of Chicago, and I'm sure that this is the case for um, for the schools that you worked at, too, they tend to already be interested in and attracted to liberal arts education. So they don't need much explanation. Right. So in right, some ways, right. the challenge is when you're talking to families who are like, why would you study something like history? I want my child to be an accountant. That way they can get a job. 
Yeah, absolutely. Or we get questions at college fairs of, do you have this major or that major? And instead of necessarily listing maybe an academic area of thought, it, they'd be listing a career and some sort of pre-professional training. And I'd be like, all right, all right, I think you're not quite getting what a liberal arts education is all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a really good point. Careers are not majors. Uh, even pre-med is not really a major. So, so that's kind of something to think about. So, but let's start with some definitions of liberal arts. Like what's a good sort of working definition that you have for what a liberal arts education is? Oh, goodness. I hope this isn't, you know, going into some sort of glossary term here. I don't know if I could I could define it. But the way I would describe it and the way I used to explain it to students who were kind of struggling is this idea of, you know, starting sometimes by what it is. is that it's not about pre-professional uh, training, but it is broad education across multiple disciplines, often with interdisciplinary study that's going to focus on honing your critical thinking skills and analytical skills to build the furniture and discipline of your mind. This sort of broad education that is looking at a wide range of academic disciplines as opposed to pre-professional study. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's pretty great. I mean, actually, I um, I was looking at different formal definitions, and uh, Yale's website has a good one. Um, it says, Yale is committed to the idea of a liberal arts education through which students think and learn across disciplines, literally liberating or freeing the mind to its fullest potential. The essence of such an education is not what you study, but the result gaining the ability to think critically and independently to write reason and communicate clearly, which is the foundation for all professions. So I think what you said and what Yale says is pretty, pretty similar. Well, good. I do like to align myself with Yale on most things. So I'm glad that they are in agreement with what I have to say. Exactly. I just didn't happen to find one at Columbia or Barnard where you went, but you know, Yale was just the first one that popped up. That's all. (laughs) That's a laugh. I'm okay with that. Okay, good. So, all right, so let's dig in a little bit more to what that means. I mean, one of the things that you talked about, I think, is just that it's not pre-professional. You're not majoring in a career, so it's not, you can certainly be a pre-med student getting a liberal arts education, but you're not studying medicine already. You're not studying to be an accountant, for example, already. Or a college admission officer, right? I didn't major in college admissions. Right, exactly. I mean, I majored in history, um, and people are often shocked when I say that. But I say, you know how I got this job? I was a tour guide in the admission office, and then they hired me to be an intern, and then they hired me to be an entry-level counselor. So, you know, yes, in some ways, history didn't have much to do, um, you know, with the work that I'm doing now. But I have to tell you, my ability to think critically in situations, to be adaptable, to learn about um, you know, to learn about the world, a lot of that, a lot of my skills in that area comes from the fact that, you know, comes from what I learned when I was studying history. How do you look at a particular question? How do you analyze it deeply? That sort of thing. I think that's 
spot on with what really a major is. It's just that. It's a lens by which you can analyze a particular problem. So you, a historian, might look to see what worked in the past, what didn't, what was the past situation, and that might help us determine how to move forward, where someone who maybe majored in economics might say, okay, let's look at the fiscal implications of this decision and address this problem through that economics lens. And that's really how I define sort of thinking about the liberal arts is by what lens would you like to critically analyze the problems you face moving forward? Mm -hmm. I think that's really true. And it's funny that you say that because I think I really do go back to history and say, well, in the past or, you know, when there's, (laughs) there's discussion, you know, when I look at sometimes discussions of, of sort of how are things are working today in modern society, I do look at comparable situations in the past. I mean, for me, an example would be, um, you know, gay, um, the right of gay men and women to marry, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it is very similar to the right in the past of, um, you know, as a historian, I do see it as comparable as the right of a white person and a black person to marry, for example, which wasn't that long, it wasn't that long ago that that became legal. So I really do look at things from that historical lens. Um, Do you have a... Yeah, well, as a sociology major, I'm fascinated by looking at the same situation and thinking, okay, well, what are the social constructs behind marriage? How do we get to view marriage in our different cultures and societies and their interaction between them? And that was very much the result of the fact that probably I was a sociology major and thinking then about the sociological impact behind that decision or or that problem, exactly applying that lens the same way. Mm -hmm. So I think we're kind of already getting into this somewhat, but what are some of the advantages of a liberal arts education? Like what are some additional advantages that, that you can think of? You know, I think... One of my favorite pieces of it was that broad education, that introduction to areas and and, uh, topics that you might not get if you have that narrow focus on one particular subject. Uh, For me, I never would have I've studied or even known about what sociology was. I uh, was very interested in the natural sciences. I thought I was going to be a physics major, which, mind you, still can be done within the world of liberal arts and sciences and a liberal arts college. But let's say I had gone to a technical program, uh, not studied the broad liberal arts. I wouldn't have had this one semester of social analysis requirement that I sort of had to take to broaden my horizons a little bit. And to satisfy that requirement, I took introduction to sociology, mainly because it fit well into my schedule and I heard good things about the professor. But my mind was blown. I'd never been challenged that way before. I never thought about problems that way before. And, and frankly, I don't think I truly appreciated what social science was. I kind of thought it was an oxymoron. Uh, and then I got to understand what that study was, took a second sociology course just for fun, and then, of course, as these stories tend to go, ended up majoring in sociology. So for Mm -hmm. me, one of the advantages of that liberal arts education was that exposure to this broad spectrum list of academic areas and disciplines and gaining some understanding and appreciation for areas I really would not have studied otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think a a similar 
you know, exa- I mean, I always knew that I wanted to be political science or history. I was sort of very boring in terms of like my mother was a political science major in college and my father was a history major in college. So I really, <laughs> really did not stray far afield. But also as somebody who went to a liberal arts college, I took a biology class with biology majors. Now, as mm. a result, you know, that class was more challenging for me, but it did make me um, interested in science in a way that maybe I hadn't been as much in high school, you know, because I think part of also, I mean, we're kind of straying off the field a little bit in talking about advantages of liberal arts colleges, but I think that when you, uh, kind of the true essence of a liberal arts college is that you're in classes with people who are also bringing these very different perspectives. So I, as a history major, brought to that biology class or say to a psychology class that I took, I brought a very historical perspective. And it was very different from the people in that class who had you know, really been trained more in biology and thought like biologists, you know, and believe me, I had taken biology in high school, but I hadn't invested myself in it the way that the other students had. So, you know, mm-hmm. this, the breadth of what was available, the the ability to sort of learn from other students that way, um, I think is pretty compelling when that happens. Sure. I'd say one of the other features that I really appreciated in hindsight, I can't say this was something I knew at 17 would be, or really understood at 17 would be so valuable, is the emphasis on writing, learning to articulate your thought and have a cohesive, sensible thesis, uh, not just in, in, in speaking, but in the written form. I think we can agree that pretty much any industry you might head into, chances are you're going to have to articulate your thought and get your point across in writing, whether it be email, whether it be some other communication platform that your industry might use, uh, regardless of what you study within the liberal arts and sciences, you can be a chemist, you can be a philosopher, you can be a mathematician, you are not going to get through a liberal arts program without learning how to write about your field and do so extensively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing I think it teaches you to do, and I, I don't want to pass by the writing quickly because... I mean, I think that people don't realize that as an engineer, for example, if you can't write and speak well and articulate your thoughts well, you might be passed over no matter how brilliant of an engineer you are. So, you know, that that is indeed um, extremely important. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about it, too, is that... um, I was really taught to ask questions, to not, uh, you mm-hmm. know, kind of accept anything at face value. I mean, I remember taking, I remember taking a class on the French Revolution, and what um, this class was great because we spent a whole semester on a pretty narrow topic, and so the way the professor structured it is that we read the classic texts of the French Revolution, and then we'd read a text that was based on kind of a more sociological perspective. We'd read one based on a more economic historian perspective, you know, one that was on a more political perspective. So this one topic we looked at from all these different lenses, and, you know, that was just a sort of phenomenal experience. I mean, we didn't look at it from a physical science or biological science perspective, (laughs) but everything else practically was in there. And that was pretty exciting to me. You almost make a French Revolution class sound fun. (laughs) It was a really (laughs) good class of the French Revolution that I think I could get behind. (laughs) It was it was actually a really remarkable class. I will say that I didn't do as well as I should have in it, mostly because it was at eight thirty in the morning, which for me in college was not. (laughs) 
was absolutely not a good thing. <laughs> so <laughs> we can do another segment a different day on tips for scheduling your college course selection based around your daily habits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, one other thing that I'll say as an advantage is that it, it kind of gave me a platform um, to understand people who were different from me. Um, you know, the, the big example that I would I would sort of bring up is I, I come from a pretty liberal perspective politically. And a friend of mine had started, um, she'd started dating a guy who was just absolutely a great guy, but he was pretty conservative. And I'm pretty outspoken about my views. And so I guess people were kind of actively worried about how I would interact <laughs> with how I would interact with Ken, because he was also quite outspoken and um, about his views. And what happened is we actually got on like a house on fire. We did great with each other because I had attended Reed. He had attended Claremont McKenna College. We had both mm -hmm. been sort of taught how to argue civilly and not mm -hmm. also be mm -hmm. intimidated in that area. And mm -hmm. I really attribute that to my liberal arts education, because when he would say something that I disagreed with, I wouldn't just say, you're wrong. I'd say, okay, tell me, what's the basis of that argument? Why do you think that's true? What kind of, what are your sources for mm -hmm. that? Let's dig into that. And it was kind of interesting because we ended up finding, we ended up being really able to define our areas of um, agreement and our areas of disagreement, but we had areas of commonality and people were amazed. I mean, really my friends were amazed, but we really got along great. So it, that to me was pretty interesting. And I thought it was because he had really had a similar, he'd had that liberal arts education and had really taken advantage of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, your main point before about how you're in class with students from all kinds of different perspectives and applying all sorts of different lenses really encourages and almost forces that interdisciplinary approach, which is another way that is going to get students comfortable with different ideas and different approaches and learning how to articulate yourself within that platform. You know, I, I, that doesn't surprise me, that interaction uh, at all, as, as really almost what the beauty and the product is of a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm. And let me just, I maybe should have said this at the beginning, and I think that um, hopefully this is clear, um, but just to address some of the really uh, like a kind of funny misconceptions. You don't have to be liberal to go to a liberal arts college. Liberal <laughs> arts is not about being liberal. It's not a political term. It's about being broadly educated. So there are colleges that are very conservative um, that have a liberal arts education. That's, you know, Claremont McKenna used to be one example, although I think now they're pretty middle of the road. And then also, as you stated, liberal the liberal arts include the sciences. So I just mm -hmm. want to make sure mm -hmm. we only have a minute left, but I just wanted to absolutely make sure um, to leave people with that knowledge. I thought it was really important that they be aware of that. Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and really, I'd say it's easier to say what it's not than it is because it is so many different things. So to limit the liberal arts to saying, oh, it's just this, uh, would really be a disservice to, to how broad of, a, of an education we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, the two of us got liberal arts education. We got liberal arts degrees. Neither of us are working in a field that is related <laughs> to our degree. And we're both gainfully mm -hmm. employed. It's pretty exciting. Gainfully so, employed. 
true. <laughs> and I'd say don't forget also that the liberal arts certainly can be studied at a broad university. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding there that they have to be done at a small liberal arts college. The liberal arts is an, is an area of study, a wide area of study. It can be done at a small college. It can be done at a large university. Uh, it, it really does not describe the college you're going to in any way either. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, I think it's time to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Tova. My pleasure, Sally. This was fun. Okay. All right, everyone, we'll now be taking a short break, and then Kira, Tyler, and I will be holding office hours in which we discuss how students can digest their college visits. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Kira, Tyler, and I are starting our, our office hours. Welcome, Kira. Thanks, Sally. Happy to be on. Kira, I think that you, like me, are having a lot of conversations with students who are just coming back from visiting colleges. That's sort of like a big theme right now. You know, I've sent students off, time for you to visit colleges, time for you to figure out what you like and what you don't like. Um, And I really love these conversations because until the visits start to happen, I find that the discussions I'm having with students tend to be really theoretical. And it also, when, when it's that theoretical, it can often just be based on you know, um, how prestigious the college is. What did my friends think about it? My neighbor Mm -hmm. went there. But, you know, once they visit, it kind of helps make the search concrete. It helps make it about them. So I'm just kind of wondering, how are those conversations going for you and and your students? And what are you emphasizing with them? Yeah, this is a really exciting time of year. It feels like a season of possibility every time we get to this point um, with our juniors because... 
Um, we are having really great discussions around schools um, based on their visits. And, you know, my students are always really, you know, excited about the ones that they really liked. And I love that. I love to hear um, when, um, I guess, perceptions match or preconceived notions match their reality. I think that's a happy coincidence. Um, so I'm always happy to hear, you know, what they liked about schools, particularly if they were really excited about them in the first place. But I'm even more excited when things don't work out um, to find out what was missing um, from that school in that particular visit. Um, so, you know, typically as I'm going through the visit with my student, and I should say that I ask them flat out, we agree that they will come back to me with at least 10 distinct things that they learned about the school on their trip. Um, so it can't be anything that can be found on a website. Like they have biomed engineering. Like we know that. So it has to be everything that they figured out from their visit. So we'll go through that, um, but when they tell me, like, oh, I saw XYZ University and it was awful, and I'm like, really, what? And it allows me an opportunity to really try to figure out, to me, it feels like they're truer priorities. I think in some ways it's easier to figure out what you're looking for when you see what you don't like, and so it often leads to really fruitful conversation. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you make sure to dig in and make sure those conversations are weighty? Because my one, well, I completely agree with you that that those sort of gut negative reactions, those negative yeah. reactions can be really helpful. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just based on like the dorms were ugly. And I'm like, that is not like, <laughs> like yeah. that's not a reason you get to eliminate a school. That's just not, yeah. right? The dorms were ugly. It's Yeah. So, so how do you get them past that? Yes. And you're right. Like things like the food wasn't good or the room seemed kind of small um, allows me to have a further conversation about the realities between, you know, for most students, the differences that will exist between dorm life, you know, residence hall life, eating life and home. Right? Like, if you grow up in a family where someone is a delicious cook, um, or you grow up in a family where you've been lucky enough to have your own space and you get it just the way you want it to be, then I can understand why at some schools you might be underwhelmed by their living facilities or their dining options, but it opens up an opportunity for me to talk about that and that that in and of itself is not a reason uh, to take a school off the list, right? What we're trying to figure out is, were you on campus and you felt uncomfortable? Were you on a campus where it seemed like they were not making good investments um, in academic facilities? Things seemed old, right? Academic facilities seemed old. I would much rather talk about that than the fact that you thought it was like, you know, kind of stunk that there was a small closet because uh, there likely will be a small closet. So I usually lead it as a springboard to helping steer students in what in the direction of what I think are bigger priorities. Because in reality, food, unless someone has a real issue around food, right, I don't want to downplay it, maybe they have some dietary concerns and they're worried that those are not going to be met. Um, and that can maybe even start to veer into, like, medical, right? But if it's just sort of preference, then um, I like to use that as an opportunity to get some context around that and steer us into a more fruitful um, conversation. 
Right, right. Absolutely. Like if someone has celiac disease and they really need a place that's going to support them not having any gluten, that's important. If it's just that, you know, there's no Chipotle nearby and the (laughs) other school had a Chipotle nearby, like that is not, you know, you're going to have to make some adaptations. And guess what? When you go to college, you might find out about new foods that you like too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's so true, but yes, you're right, like a celiac kind of thing, or I've even, you know, had students where they are kosher diners, and, you know, they inquire about it at a school, and and most schools have, you know, good kosher options, but even that, you know, sometimes can be something, something of a deal breaker. So, yeah, I think what we're trying to do is figure out, is this really a thing, or is this just like, I would like Taco Bell and there's not one near, or the more elevated Chipotle. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, one of the things that I always try and get, I feel like students get it when they know that location, um, you know, they think a lot about location. And, and I think that that can have a big impact on students, you know, how far away I. from home it is. I was ready to go far away from home. It wasn't an issue for me, but I've just realized that a lot of my students, you know, more than two hours is just going to be too much. But they forget to think about you know, and they think about the major, that's good, but they forget to think about school culture as well. And I think that that's really important. And an example that I'd give is, um, I, I had this one student, I loved this kid who was kind of a sensitive poet, you know, like, like sort of wore a lot of black and sort of darker colors and like, you know, visited a really wonderful college here in the Northeast. And, um, you know, I, I guess he just didn't look at the other students there because when I had visited, it was pretty obvious that it was a kind of a jock school. Now I'm being reductive, but, and believe me, these were very smart kids. This is a very good school, but the students Mm -hmm. tended to be very athletic. They tended to be very sort of just traditionally what you think of when you think of college students, you know, sort of fraternity, sorority oriented, that kind of thing. Um, And I think maybe, and and he came back and he was like, Ms. Ganga, I love it. That place is amazing. It's perfect for me. And I was like, okay, like I didn't see the match, but I was going to defer to his impulses, right? I mean, we we had conversations about it, but he was so sure. Um, He was there for a year and he was like, I don't like it. And when we did kind of a postmortem, I mean, he was, he, he, you know, and he, he said that he loved the classes. That wasn't a problem, but I realized it wasn't a cultural fit. And when I was trying to figure out what went wrong, I realized that he just kind of had been, I think maybe swayed by how beautiful the campus was and by the fact Mm. that the academics really were top notch. And he'd kind of neglected to like notice the fact that most of the time when he saw students outside, they were like jogging and playing lacrosse. And, you know, there wasn't (laughs) a lot of like poetry workshops and things that mattered to him. He kind of didn't dig into the student culture enough. Right. And I, uh, gosh, um, I love the juxtaposition between, it's not that you can't be a poetry loving uh, lacrosse player, but they sometimes exist in different orbits, but um, Yeah, this idea that sometimes I do think at these campuses, they are, they really fulfill the traditional uh, lust for a really beautiful, ivy-filled, lots of green grass experience. Um, And sometimes we can be swayed by uh, by that. And, And the academics seem like a fit too, right? But if you're surrounded by people who perhaps have different priorities, different cultural values, 
Um, it's not that it can't work, but I think if you're trying to downplay those, thinking that they're not important or they'll go away, that at some point when you're living in that environment 24-7 with students who may have some distinct differences from you, that um, it can be hard to bridge those. And it doesn't mean that, again, we don't want students to maybe push themselves or stretch outside of their comfort zone, but I also really do want students to pay attention to who they are, um, you know, and, and, and in what environment they think they'll learn best, but also be happiest surrounded by people who they feel comfortable with. Um, and, you know, I think before we would have talked about this a lot, right? But recently, I think we talk about this even more because with all of the um, discussion around politics and, and more so even civil engagement, um, on college campuses. I think that's another thing that I'm really encouraging my students to really think about. Um, I thought it was hilarious in the previous segment where uh, you all talked about liberal arts as not being just for liberals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. But um, in all seriousness, I think um, this isn't even really about politics. I think this is really about students also recognizing if they can get a sense for the level of civic engagement on campuses, maybe around politics, around speakers, around um, open community discussions, what's really, what are hot button issues on campuses, if they can also put that into the mix as they're looking at schools, I think that's important because it's almost impossible at this point to escape a campus that doesn't have some sort of civic engagement going on. It's really at the point of, as a prospective student, at what level do you want to engage in that? You know, are you comfortable being in an environment where they really push the boundaries and students are, you know, doing sit-ins on, um, you know, regularly doing boycotts and protests and, you know, that sort of thing? Or would you feel better about being at a place that, maybe doesn't have that as much, that much spirit going on around engagement. Right, right. And and really, you can have that engagement on both sides of the spectrum. I mean, the, uh, you yes. know, the example that I would give is Liberty University, which has multiple, yes. you know, is a very conservative institution, very religious, and has multiple presidential candidates going there. And it's mandatory mm-hmm. that students go to those gatherings. So, so you know, it, at the more liberal institutions, none of these gatherings are mandatory at the same time. It can be such a part of the, the um, campus conversation that you're not really going to be able to escape it. Yes, I agree. And at this point, it's almost like athletics. You know, I mean, do you want to go to a school that's really rah-rah and rallies around athletics, or are you hoping to go to a school where that's not as much of a presence? I think it's really kind of on that scale. Hard to escape, always going to be there, but at what level do you want? And I, I, I a thousand percent second me, it exists on both sides, you know, and I think that's great. That's what we want. We want students from all flavors and backgrounds with all types of ideas to be able that they can voice those. But it is about, um, you know, at what level do you want that sort of swirling around your academic experience? Right, right. And I think the issue is it's good to be challenged. That's you go to college to be challenged. That's really part and parcel of it. College should not be uh, an experience where you are never um, uncomfortable. You should be uncomfortable sometimes, but you should not be completely overwhelmed by what you're finding out about. So what are some, I mean, beyond the campus visit, what are some concrete ways that you suggest that people sort of, or 
I mean, obviously just visiting, but specifically while they're on campus, what are some additional things that you recommend they do? One of the things I recommend is go ahead and pick up a copy of the campus newspaper and read it. I mean, that's one example right off the bat. Right. I do as well. Um, I also suggest if you can, you know, grab a meal. This is not, you know, excuse me, um, you know, earth-shattering news, but I think um, sitting down after or before a tour and um, trying to get a meal in the dining hall or in an establishment on campus where you're kind of off the, um, the party line and you're in with the regular student body, Try to do that. I think you can learn a lot from, like, who's sitting with who. What seem, you know, do people seem happy? Are they chatting? Are people studying? Are they sitting alone? And even better, can you, you know, catch the attention of a current student and see if you can ask them a couple of questions? Mm-hmm. You know, for some students, that's hard to do. So sometimes, you know, that's a, a strategy that we um, talk about, that I talk about with my students before they go. It's okay. This might be a good opportunity for the parent to sort of, you know, slide in casually and ask a student. So I would yeah. suggest, yeah, and I think that's a good way to gauge temperature on campus as well. Yeah, I actually had a student who, um, he was a <clears throat> little shy, but so his father, when his father took him on trips, made him go up to at least one student per campus who was not a yeah. tour guide and ask that student a question. And it, he learned so much by doing that. I mean, it was and the thing is, at least at the colleges he was at, people were really open to it. I mean, he said he you know, the worst thing he got was, I'm really sorry, I don't have time to talk. I'm I'm, I'm late for class. That was like the mm-hmm. worst you know, and that's totally understandable, right? That's just like, I'm sorry, I would talk, but I'm late for class. <laughs> he got a lot of great additional information. Now, the other thing that I recommend too is like go to the student union and look at the organizations that seem to be dominant. You know, try and find out who maybe is particularly active on campus. You do have to take it with a grain of salt because it could just be who's having an event on that day. And that's why you right. need to ask people. Um But, you know, what are the biggest clubs on campus? That could be, you know, what are the ones that are most active? That can actually be really interesting. The example that I would give that that freaks out some people I know is at UC Berkeley, at least at one point, the Young Republicans Club, the Student Republicans Club, was actually the biggest Mm -hmm. club on campus, which I thought was sort of hilarious. Um, Mind you, I still think Berkeley is a pretty liberal place, but nonetheless, there's clearly a real presence of conservatives. So, you know, good for people to know about it. Well, I think Sally, yeah, I mean, I think that's still going on, right? Like Berkeley's been in the news recently just about that topic. But yeah, I, I mean, I think to that point, and I don't know, you know, as we move to a world that relies less on paper, um, you know, maybe these things are happening, not even maybe, of course, they're happening more digitally than, than you know, when we were around. But you're right. I think going to a student union or if campuses still allow papering um, on their uh, on their grounds, you know, so people can post flyers or talk or whatever. Yeah, you get a real flavor for what, what the pulse of the campus is, what's hot at that point in time. Um, you know, so I think, again, that can also be really, really instructive. Good for students, good for parents, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, don't be shy about asking, I think, controversial questions. I mean, you need to ask it in a polite way. Um, but, you know, an example is I was at a school in Texas that 
the stereotype of this school is that it's pretty conservative party school. That's what's the stereotype. But the young right. woman who's giving me the tour had a Save Darfur t-shirt on. So clearly, I mean, you can be conservative and really care about saving Darfur, but clearly not, clearly somebody who was cared about international issues. Uh, mm-hmm. So I asked her, I, I actually said, you know, there's a stereotype of this campus. And I was hoping, you know, you would address that. I said, I don't, personally believe it because every campus is more complex, but I really want to get your perspective on this place as a conservative party school. And she was like, that's not me. That's not my friends. We're here. We're happy. We're learning a lot. So yeah, that's, that exists here too, but so do all these other things. And she was very open to answering it because I didn't say, you know, dude, I heard this is a conservative party school. Like, or heard you guys just party all the time. I said, tell me more about this you know, bust this myth or let me know if there's some accuracy. I want to get your perspective. She was very open to answering it. So I really recommend that students head on, maybe address any concerns that they have, but just do it in a way to say, you're the expert. Give me your perspective on this. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I, in my perfect world, I think that those kinds of questions are best driven by the student. I mean, if, if the student is uncomfortable or it sort of becomes a family conversation with the current student, then I think it's okay. But my, my ultimate, you know, would be the student, the perspective asked. Um, but I'm like you, Sally. I mean, I've asked that question, um, you know, some version of it. I have heard X, Y, Z. What do you think about that? At most schools that I visit, I remember explicitly doing that at a, at a I will now say at a Catholic school on the East Coast. I was going to say religious and then I forgot myself, but at a Catholic school on the East Coast who had a, a particular kind of reputation and, um, it was a little bit confirmed, actually, by the person, but I loved their honesty. And um, another question that I often ask is, you know, aside from tell me what, what's your favorite thing about this school, if you could change something, be honest, what would it be? I also ask, was this your first choice and where else did you apply? Um, because I, I like to let students... I think that, you know, that we need people to be honest about, you know, when a student isn't, like, this isn't their dreamy number one choice. Maybe this was their fourth choice, but they wound up there and they loved it. I I mean, that I think is fantastic. And I also really like to hear other schools that they were considering because I think um, for students it can be um, a good learning tool. Like, oh, they also applied there. Oh, I'm thinking of that or I've never heard of that. Tell me more. So I also ask those couple of questions too. Okay. All right. So we've run out of time, but thanks so much, Kira. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Sally. Thank you. All right, stick around, listeners, as next I'll be talking with Tara Piantanita Kelly about what parents can do to finance college now that their child has deposited. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Tara. Let's talk about what parents can do to finance college now that their child has chosen their college and has even sent in their deposit. Excellent. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Really good. Thank you. Good. So let's dive right in. From a finance perspective, what needs to happen after the student has deposited? All right, so, so parents think, okay, we've picked our school and we've deposited, we've crossed the finish line, right? Well, actually, no, there, there are more finish lines beyond that. So um, just from now on, instead of talking with the admissions office, you're going to be spending more time talking with other offices on campus, like the financial aid office and residence life and student accounts. But once you've submitted your deposit, if you've received a financial aid award from the school, now is going to be the time to either um, accept uh, none of the offer, accept some of the offer, or accept all of the financial aid offer that the school has offered. Okay, and so how would they do that? Like, how do you do that? Well, it it can be done in a couple of ways. Um, The school may have sent a paper financial aid award um, with places that the student can either accept or decline the awards listed. Um, But most schools also have some kind of electronic or online website where the student can log in and accept or decline awards that way. So um, if, if you're not sure, you can always contact the school financial aid office and ask. Okay. So you, accept, you said accept none or some or all of the financial aid. So what do you mean by that? Well, a, a financial aid award usually has different parts to it. Like um, it might have some free money in grants or scholarships. It might have some loan. It might have some work study. And you get to decide what you want. So, of course, you're going to accept all of the free money, all of the grants and scholarships. And then if the school offered some work study, then you'll have to decide, you know, do you want the student to work on campus next year or not? Now, if you do, go ahead and accept that award. But if not, then define it. And if uh, loans are part of the package, you'll have to decide if you want those or not. But even there, you have some flexibility. So let's say the school offered the student the federal annual maximum for the dependent freshman on the federal direct loan, which is $5,500. The student can accept the entire amount, or they can reduce it to something lower and accept that amount, or they can decline it altogether. And if the parents want to borrow on the federal parent plus loan, they'll need to do something similar. They can accept the amount that was offered, 
They can um, change it to a higher amount and accept that. They can change it to a lower amount, accept that, or they can decline it all together. So the end result is that the school's financial aid office knows exactly the types of aid and amount that the student wants for the year. Okay. So, and, and if you're using any kind of loans to cover college costs, um, I can't stress enough how important it is to keep in touch with the financial aid office. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what happens after a student or parent accepts a loan on the financial aid award? Well, that's when the financial aid office gets involved and they they say there's this online process that you'll need to go through and the financial aid office will kind of walk, walk the student and the parents through that process. Okay. All right. It sounds like the student will be talking to the financial aid office a lot. And I know that was the case when I was in college. I mean, I swear I dropped into that office at least twice a semester. Um, and then my mom was having her own conversations. So, um, so I'm guessing that's the case at other schools too, huh? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and especially if a student has been um, selected for a process called verification. Um, and either the school or the FAFSA central processor can select a student for verification. But if, if the student's selected, then he's going to have to submit some additional documentation to the financial aid office to essentially verify that the information that he listed on the FAFSA and or the profile is accurate. And if the documents show something different than what was listed on the FAFSA or the profile, the student's financial aid award can change, and it can change pretty dramatically. So that's why it's really important to respond to requests from the school's financial aid office quickly. So I've, I've worked at schools where, you know, students don't turn in their paperwork until the end of summer or sometimes even the beginning of fall, and their financial aid awards change at that point. And then all of a sudden, a school that they thought they could afford, they can't afford. And, mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes the student has to transfer. It's just It's just bad. So respond to those as quickly as you can. Yeah, well, I actually worked at a school where if you didn't turn your forms in on time, you're, they were explicit that your awards could be reduced. So Good. follow the yeah. deadlines big time. I mean, I just can't stress that enough. Um, right. So how does the school's financial aid office contact the student um, to let him or her know if they need more documents? Oh, well, once a student has committed to the school, um, the school will often communicate with the student rather than the parent. So the student becomes the, the number one person that they're talking to, not the parent. And sometimes parents aren't used to that. So they, they keep thinking, I didn't get anything from the school. Well, no, but your student did. So it, it's pretty common for the schools to communicate with their students using the student's new school email address. And, uh, you know, if the student doesn't check that particular email address very often, he won't know if the school needs anything from him. So, you know, from a parent's perspective, that can be really scary. So parents, you know, keep in touch with your students during this time. Ask them if they've received anything from the school, either by snail mail or by email. Make sure that they check their new school email account regularly. And parents can also call the school's financial aid office to see if the student's file is complete. But remember, parents, there are FERPA laws, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, so the school may not be able to tell you everything that you want to know about your student. Mm-hmm. And so is that school email address just used for financial aid-related information? Actually, no. That many different offices throughout the campus will use that email address. So, like, for instance, Residence Life may send the student an email telling him to complete a roommate survey or maybe sign up for orientation or student accounts or the bursar's office can send the student an email saying, hey, your fall bill is due. Um, maybe the health center can send an email to the student notifying him that he owes some health forms. So that address can be used quite a lot throughout camp, throughout the campus. 
Yeah, and actually faculty might be uh, in touch with students that way too. So definitely important to check in. Um, what are some other things that students and parents need to know after committing to a school and submitting a deposit? Well, um, a, a few things. Sometimes parents are surprised when they say, okay, I sent in my deposit, we're good to go. Well, have you, if, if your student is planning to live on campus, there might be a housing deposit that they would need to send in as well. And sometimes those housing deposits are, you know, on a first-come, first-served basis. So if your deposit is late, you know, you might be out of luck or maybe your student may not get into his first-choice residence hall. So, um, you know, think about that as well. If your student is planning to live on campus, is there an additional deposit required? Um, let's see. If, if you're planning to pay for some of the semester or quarter using the school's payment plan, now is the time to set that up with the school. So sometimes the first payment is due even before the student starts classes. So um, you'd want to get that set up uh, earlier rather than later. And that would be through the student account office or the bursar's office, depending on, on what the school um, calls that particular office. Mm -hmm. It and, sounds uh, like the, the... Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, no go ahead. Okay. Well, I, I it sounds like the overall <laughs> message is just pay attention to anything sent to you by the school. I mean, I can tell you that I used to tell people that when I was an admissions officer, but, you know, there's so... So this information... And I think parents and students are confused because the information goes from like, apply to our school, happy, 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 everything is good. And then they're and then they don't realize that you can't ignore anything anymore once the student is admitted. You have to look through all of it because there could be something really important in there. Absolutely. There's there's no marketing stuff going out at this point. That you've already made a commitment to them, and they've made a commitment to you. Now everything that goes back and forth from this point is very important. <laughs> So yeah. pay attention. Okay. All right. And I think that's it for today. Um, thank, Tara, thank you, Tara. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Okay. And thanks so much to my other guests today, Tova Tolman and Kira Tyler. Next week, Beth Heaton will be back as your host, and she and a, and a college finance consultant will be answering listener questions. In addition, she and a guest will be discussing Bachelor of Science and Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine programs, which are actually a great option for students who are interested in becoming a doctor, especially those who are interested in becoming general practitioners. There's still great programs. Um, you're still a doctor, but it's a little bit less selective, selective than the traditional medical doctor programs. And finally, I want to remind you that every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find all our past shows, including those featuring the Schools Out and Schools In segments, which began on June 30th, 2015. Or you can check out last week's show when we discussed applying to college as a student on the autism spectrum and how summer jobs can help you pay for college. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time, 1 p.m. Pacific time. Check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.